But I also told you that we need to set very ambitious goals and even set them higher to account for some challenges. So it was just a couple of weeks ago that we announced we are going to reduce by 50% the amount of virgin petroleum plastic usage across Procter & Gamble. Let me reiterate that. By 2030, we will reduce by 50% our use of virgin petroleum plastic. That's fantastic commitment, and we will deliver that. And that's because we believe that reduction is of paramount importance. Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community undeterred by people saying, if others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter, and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you. Hear their struggles. And then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to commit to a public, personal challenge of your own. You're not alone, and you don't have to wait for others. Procter & Gamble produces a lot of plastic and produces a lot of waste, which makes them very interesting to me. An old me, pre-knowing leadership, would have protested or picketed, things like that. But the leader in me sees the opportunity to support change if they aren't changing and to help motivate it if they are and they care. Also, to help increase the joy, meaning, and purpose that the leadership part of the title of this podcast alludes to. So Steve has been there for nearly 30 years. He knows their history and practices backward and forward. He knows what's going on inside the company. He's also very enthusiastic. Well, you'll hear this, but you'll meet few people who are more enthusiastic about where they work. We also talk about systemic change and overall reduction of use of plastics and fossil fuel type things. I'm not sure if it's Procter & Gamble's main goal, or rather, I think that it's possible that Procter & Gamble and I see the relevant systems differently. What they see is perhaps a side effect, I think may possibly be some unintended side effects, maybe larger than the effects that they're working on. One of my main discoveries in environmental action is the difference between raising efficiency and lowering overall waste. Working on one may have nothing to do with the other. A lot of people think, well, at least we should try moving in the direction of increasing efficiency, and that'll get us to lowering but it's possible that raising efficiency, and this often happens historically, increases the total waste while making people think that they're decreasing it, which leads them to use more. I've read studies showing that for the past several generations and maybe centuries, our overall efficiency has increased and contributed to increasing total waste, which looks to me like what's going on in our world today. So I'm glad that they're conscious and acting on these things. A lot of people think reusing and recycling, at least it'll get us in the direction of reducing. I'm not so sure about that. I think it's easy to think I'm making things more efficient and therefore I'm reducing and keep doing more. And a lot of people resist, they react emotionally, intensely to proposing that what they think is lowering waste is possibly increasing it. Anyway, at my stage, I'm just starting to have these conversations. I asked Steve if he'd be willing to talk about it and he graciously said, yes, it's comfortable for him to go in that direction. So he did. It's hard for me to express how much gratitude I feel towards Steve for openly having this conversation with me and allowing me to go in this direction. I imagine it was challenging on both our sides. This podcast isn't part of journey for me, and I would never have access to what Steve shares with me without someone like Steve sharing it with me. So I'm really glad he had this conversation. 
even if I'm kind of struggling at the beginning to figure out how to talk about it. Let's take it away. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Steve Sikra. Steve, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic, Josh. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you here. And you are, I believe, a associate director at Procter & Gamble. And do I read right? You've been there for almost 30 years? Correct. This is my 28th year here at Procter & Gamble. Very blessed and fortunate to be here with this good company. So, and I met you through uh, a previous guest, Tom Zaki. You wrote, you co-wrote a book. Uh, I guess you wrote a chapter in his book on recycling and what, like a lot of people think what's recyclable or not is a technical issue, but it's also an economic issue. Oh, I'd like to get to that. But I want to start by sharing what you do, uh, what your personal goals are, and also what you do at Procter & Gamble. And what's, what are Procter & Gamble's goals and what are the actions that are taking, if that's not too much of a first question to start with? That's an easy question, Josh. Thank you. Let me start with Procter & Gamble. So I'm, I'm in a very fortunate position working here at Procter & Gamble. I'll start by saying I'm a material science engineer, but I've been engaged in our businesses for some period of time. My current role is to help identify and implement solutions such that our packages and our products have a better end of life than landfill. Now, let me, let me dissect that a little bit. I try to find new homes for our used packages and products. A lot of that involves recycling and the recycling of plastics. And when you say ours, is that P&G only or the world or both? That's the global picture, the ours. So I do it with a Procter & Gamble intention. But the reality is there's no distinguishing between one plastic brand or the other in the sense that we want to collect it together, aggregate it as a whole, and then use it for the collective good. And so essentially a polyethylene bottle, whether it's a Tide bottle or a milk bottle, both has a home in the environment. And we don't want to distinguish between the two and only use one and not the other. We get more value when we collect it all back in the aggregate and use it back into the same materials again. And can you talk a bit about the motivation for this? I mean, I, I sense that there's passion in you that if you you want to do this, is it cleaning the environment? Is it economic? I guess there's a bunch of different things, but you're in it. And most people from the outside don't know. Yeah, there's value in the materials, right? We, we believe in the premise plastic has value and we want to use it, use it again. We want to use it over and over again. Um, it has value in the sense that it's a lightweight material. So when we compare it to alternatives, it offers many benefits for the environment in terms of less greenhouse gas, less energy to produce, less water is used in the production of this material. And so it has fantastic value. So long as we can collect it, reuse it, recycle it, and keep it in the supply chain, it really has no place in the environment, but it has multiple uses when we collect it and bring it back and give it a second, third, and fourth life, if you will. And so that connects with me on a personal level, it, knowing that I work for a company that does good, it enables me to satisfy some of my own personal values. And it's, you know, it's a blessing to work for a, a company that enables you to do good for yourself, for the environment and for, for the consumers in general, knowing that we're going to leave a, a better place in the world for our kids and grandkids. Was it always this way? I feel like a while ago, it's not like people were like, maybe several generations ago, no one was like, hey, you know what, let's, let's pollute the environment. But I don't think that people were talking the way you were. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if in the time that you were there, you were part of that transition of not 
I don't know what it was. I'm curious what it was before. Has there been a transition in the time you're there to what you're talking about now from something else? Or have people always been trying to be? Been a transition in the sense that we talk about it a lot more. At, at Procter & Gamble, we've been recycling for over 30 years. But what we've been doing more so lately is recognizing that working together with others, other like-minded companies in a pre-competitive manner is a necessity if we're really going to make meaningful change. And so when we talk about increasing the recycling rate, it's not a competition to do that. It's a partnership that's required, a collaboration that's required, not just with competition, but with communities and governments and everybody plays a role in the supply chain. And so that's been the transformation is not so much in what we're doing. Certainly we're doing more and we're increasing the recycling and committing to higher values, but we're also talking about it more. We're collaborating more and we're partnering with others in a much more meaningful way to drive greater change. Can you describe one of those partnerships if you don't mind going into more detail? I'd love to hear a story behind one of these getting started. Like, who so you let me talk with about it? one in particular. It's called the Recycling Partnership, where Procter & Gamble and many other companies have come together and recognized that with this grassroots effort, they've just celebrated five years with the Recycling Partnership. They provide grant funding to communities. They provide best practices. They work with communities to help them improve their recycling programs. And they've been doing a fantastic job at bringing that to life and really operating at that community level is something that we've been celebrating for some period of time. And, and the recycling partnership brings that to life. So think of grants, best practices, really what we call boots on the ground to help communities take recycling to the next level. Another example that we're very proud of is the work we do with an organization called the Closed Loop Fund. Mm-hmm. So whereas the recycling... Oh, is that Ron Gonans? Yeah, that's Ron. Okay, previous guest. Okay, cool. Yeah, so Ron, City of New York, and, uh-huh. and now his full-time job is with the Closed Loop Fund. Mm-hmm. So whereas the Recycling Partnership operates with, with grants and best practices, uh, the Closed Loop Fund works on an investment model. And so Procter & Gamble and many other companies were part of the Closed Loop Fund. We joined them in 2014, and we developed a, a funding mechanism where – we provide zero interest loans to municipalities to invest in the recycling infrastructure. And to for-profit companies, we provide below market rate loans to invest in the infrastructure for recycling and recovery. And what we found via the analysis with both the Recycling Partnership and Closed Loop Fund, that a combination of best practices and infrastructure was needed to really improve the recovery of materials and plastics in general. Those are just two examples. We have dozens of examples where we partner with others. And if I go back 30 plus years ago, where we were working with others to develop the first supply chain for the use of colored plastic bottles, we were an instrumental component in doing that and reusing collected plastic bottles back into our detergent bottles again and again. And so helping build out that supply chain with year-on-year demand for the material has proven to be a very effective solution. And it's not just coming in one year and out the next, it's that year-on-year commitment to a demand, uh, an end end market demand for the post-consumer material that keeps the recycling industry alive and growing and and ever so vital in our supply chain. So you were talking earlier about, or I was asking about goals. So say this works. What do you see in 
2020, 2025, 2030. I don't know what timescales P&G thinks on. It's oh, let me start with the vision that we have at Procter & Gamble. And, and we have a vision that none of our materials will end up in a landfill. None of the materials from our manufacturing sites and none of the products or packages that we sell to consumers. That's just one example of a vision that we have. We have other vision components that talk about ensuring that our consumers have sustainable choices for products and packaging. We view that as our responsibility to deliver this for consumers. We have a vision that we want to get to all of our manufacturing facilities being powered by renewable energy. These are examples of a vision that we have, but to bring that to life, we've put forth time-based goals. So we have 2020 goals, we have 2025 goals, 2030 goals, and these are encompassed, and I'll focus on packaging because you started with a reference to Tom Zaki's book, The Future of Packaging. So if I extract from our goals, we have a goal to be um, 100% recyclable, renewable, or compostable in our package design by 2030. We have a goal by 2020 to double our use of post-consumer recycled content from our baseline in 2010. We have a very stretching and aspirational goal such that by 2030, we've identified solutions such that no P&G plastic packaging ends up in the ocean. But we also have very tangible, well-thought-out action steps to bring these to life, specific to the no plastic in the ocean goal. That is a monstrous goal, and, and we'll come back to how that resonates with me on a personal level, setting very ambitious goals, and then accounting for things like gravity that will slow you down. So you have to have monster goals out there, but realistic ways to deliver them one of those in particular, we're very, very proud of the fact that along with 30 other companies, we were part of building a new nonprofit that we called the Alliance to End Plastic Waste. And part of a solution set that is identifying solutions for investment to help stop the flow of plastic to our environment. So the Alliance to End Plastic Waste has a vision where we'll have no plastic in our environment. And we've committed collectively. $1.5 billion in infrastructure to help deliver against that goal. So that's just a, another set of examples against our vision, against our time-based goals that we're going to implement and are implementing now to bring these vision to life in a, in a more reasonable time frame. And hence having these goals, whether it's 2020, 2025, or 2030, are very realistic and hold us accountable towards that vision. There's so many directions I want to go in. Uh, one of them is that a lot of what you're talking about is you're, if you were, once someone buys something, it's in their hands. So it sounds like you're talking about taking responsibility for things that are outside of your hands, which I'm hearing more and more talk of. It reminds me of um, Lorna Davis, who helped Danone become a B Corp. She talked a lot about that because they also have a lot of package stuff, Danone, you know, food packaging and things. Let me just interject because um, along with the Alliance to End Plastic Waste, we're also part of a formula of effort to build a, a closed loop fund type model in Southeast Asia. So we're, we're informed by very good um, organizations, the Ocean Conservancy being one of them, and uh, Dr. Jenna Jambak, who works with the Trash Free Seas Alliance of the Ocean Conservancy. And we know that fast moving Asian economies aren't keeping pace with their infrastructure. And so a lot of plastic in the ocean comes from Southeast Asia. 
So what did we do? Well, we we worked with the closed loop fund. We commissioned an effort to do, go develop an infrastructure fund for Southeast Asia. That's called Circulate Capital. P&G was one of the, the founding members funding that study effort. We're also a founding member with Circulate Capital, put an investment fund in place in Southeast Asia. And Danone is also part of that effort, as well as many other companies, Coke, Pepsi, et cetera. And we're very happy to partner with, with those companies, even pre-competitively recognizing the value of working together for a, a collaboration towards this, this goal of no plastic waste in the environment. We need to do it collectively across the entire supply chain, but not just as companies, Josh, as individuals, we need to do this. And with communities and governments and the entire global community needs to be part of this effort if we really want a meaningful change. Now, she would, Lorna would say that a big piece of the change from for her company came by switching to a B Corp in which they don't have to, it's not only the share price. Now, you guys, obviously, P&G has been around for a long time. You guys aren't blithely doing stuff against your business interests. What are people missing when they think, oh, they just have to do whatever it takes and profit and who cares about anything else? That's obviously not what you're doing. Well, our consumers give us a very clear message that they want to participate in being a part of the sustainable solution. And they count on companies like Procter & Gamble to provide them packages and products that can be sustainable. And depending on where you're at in the world, that could be something as simply as recycling. And so companies count on Procter & Gamble and others to design for recycling, to be part of the system to improve recycling. And our consumers tell us, we want to be part of the solution set. I want to do my job. I want to recycle. Please design things for recycling. Please use recycled content. And we do. And so part of our goal, as I said, was by 2030, 100% of our packaging willing will be designed to be recycled or reused or composted. And that's a, quite a stretching goal as we think of the number of companies that we operate in, the number of benefits that we get from different types of packages and package materials, and often may require some innovation, not just innovation in materials, but also innovation in business models. Refills, for example, is one solution set. But there's no one-size-fits-all solution. We need to make sure that we're part of bringing many solutions to our consumer base. And in, in turn, we trust that our consumers are going to reward us with purchasing our products and our packaging. And that's where it makes sense for us. And it's, it's built upon a spirit of trust and, and a reward that when we give them packages and products that perform as intended, but also have that home that enables them to recycle and be sustainable, they reward us with our with purchase of our products and packaging. So it's a very symbiotic relationship. Okay. So when you say you get that signal, what I heard at the top level, and correct me if I heard it wrong, is that you get a signal from your customers that this is what we demand. And since the people listening to this, people listening are individuals themselves, then that gives them a signal that if they, is it fair to conclude the more that they recycle, the more that they purchase based on, is this recyclable? Is this based on recycled materials and so forth? Then that will increase your motivation as well as the motivation of others like P&G. And if that's the case, how, how exactly do you sense that? There's some sort of market research or is it, how do you guys know what the demand is? We, we talk to our consumers on a regular basis, whether it's something as simple as them calling us on our 1-800 number. We have a consumer comments line. We constantly measure 
complaints and inquiries and testimonials. We hold focus groups. We talk to um, consumers at the community level. We look for feedback across all generations from, from moms and parents to grandparents. And we're always looking to learn more from our consumer base. Our consumers inform us in every angle that you might imagine. But we also talk to the recycling community, to the waste haulers, the waste collectors, the material recovery facilities, to the processors of these materials. And we work to ensure that what we're designing for and asking them to process through their systems indeed has a good home, a good end market for it. And so it's not just dialogue with the consumers who buy our goods, but also with the supply chain that uses it on the back end and collects it and recovers it. And it's a constant dialogue. Um, it, there's an, an ever-changing landscape, and we know that being part of that solution on a going basis is a necessity. So the constant flow of information is something that um, we yearn for and make sure we have mechanisms for it to continue to learn. It's funny. Earlier today, I was, or maybe it was yesterday, I was talking to someone about uh, plastic bags, if they're recyclable or not. Would it be a benefit to Procter & Gamble for people to call up that number and ask things about or complain about things that you guys have? Does that give you valuable information into, in order to improve your programs? Or am I flooding your calls with like, or am I going to flood the number with like calls that are a pain in the butt? We, we invite our consumers to give us very credible feedback, right? And so we put the 1-800 number on the back of our packaging for a reason. And we track, again, we track complaints, we track inquiries, we track testimonials. We invite consumers to look at our branded websites for information. In a lot of examples, you can go to our websites and it'll help inform you on package material, end-of-life options. We're sponsoring efforts with groups like TerraCycle. With, we're headquartered in Cincinnati, so with um, the city of Cincinnati and with Hamilton County, working with them to ensure messaging to consumers is appropriate for end-of-life, what can be recycled, what cannot. Um, we work with TerraCycle, as a matter of fact, with um, providing a database such that consumers can go to the database and input their zip code and get information on where to take their packages and products when they're done, when they're empty for better recovery. So that's an interesting person. You're making me think in something I hadn't thought of before, because a lot of people say, you know, one of the most important things you can do is vote. I agree. You can't vote that often. But calling places, if I have something and I'm not sure what to do with the package, calling the place up, whether it's P&G or other places, it's not quite voting, but it's it's still useful. I mean, Certainly, there are going to be other companies. So Josh, sorry, let me just interject. Sorry to cut you off. But what we really encourage is to talk to the municipalities where they reside because they have the most up-to-date information on what works within their system. Oh, it'll depend so on the local example, MRF. Right. Talk to the local recycler, the, the local waste hauler, the, the local material recovery facility, because they're going to tell you the materials that have value to them and they're going to tell the consumer what works well within that system. And you alluded to a question earlier that perhaps we might talk about recyclability, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'd like to define recyclability as, as a system that includes access to collection, a system that has the ability to process this material, and ever so important, an in-market demand for the material. As a material science, I'll tell you, I can recycle almost anything, but that's not really the definition. What we want to know is, 
is it being recycled in my area where I'm at today? And that information is best served coming from the recycler or the community in which you live. So we always encourage people, look at the website for your community, read the messaging that your community is giving you and recycle what they ask for. And if they're not asking for that material, please don't put it in. That's called wish cycling. Mm. And it actually just causes more issues. So we have people then that wish something was recycled. They might put it in the, the recycle bin. Well, that means we're spending energy to collect it, energy to separate it. But if there's no end market for it, it ultimately is going to go to landfill anyway. So wish cycling doesn't work, but recycling properly does. And count on companies like ours and others to work collectively to expand what can be collected, sorted, and have an end market demand because those three components really define true recycling in action. So, all right. So I heard called the municipality for what can be recycled or what can be processed in what way and call P&G for complaints or what you're looking for specifically from P&G. Yeah, let me, let me clarify. Yeah. If any consumer has a question on a P&G product or package, we welcome the phone call. Now, if they really want a question on what can be recycled where they live, we can redirect them. However, it's best if they check with their local community because that's where the information resides. Okay. That's, that's what we would do. We would say, where do you live? In which county? We would direct them to that website. So we, we might as well inform them to go there directly. Okay. Okay. Now, I want to get to something that I'm actually pleasantly surprised that this is at a more business talk, partnership, business relationship than it was uh, about the specifics of what's recyclable, what's not recyclable. And I'd like to talk to you about something that there's a, an evolving uh, perspective that I've, I, that I've had that I haven't really gotten to bounce off people that as I've evolved my environmental practice, I've moved much more into reducing. And the more that I do so, the more that I, if it's okay with you, I'm going to share a view and I'd love your thoughts on it uh, of whatever sort, because I haven't really gotten it vetted. And the view is that if, I guess if, if I don't go back too far, I, and I think of like the steam engine, the, the Watt steam engine was not the first steam engine. It was the more, it was significantly more efficient than any before. And when it got created, people expected, I believe, that coal use would go down because the steam engine was more efficient. And for each individual use, the coal use would go down. But overall, collectively, the, the use coal use went up, not because of each individual use, but it became cheaper. So more people got steam engines and would use them more. And so the total use of coal went up. Now, total benefit went up as well. People are now doing things that they couldn't do before. But it, it calls to mind that there's a difference between increasing efficiency and increasing total waste and decreasing total waste, that one can increase efficiency and also increase total waste. And I made, I I don't want to draw too close of a parallel. I've made big jumps between steam engines and other things, but that I've come to see, and this is an unchallenged view. So I I welcome things that I'm missing that if, uh, if we don't decrease the production of plastic, then if we recycle, then so say we get, say there's something that was once going to go into the ocean. Okay. It doesn't go into the ocean, but we put it back into circulation. That makes plastic cheaper. It's like increases the supply of plastic. And now it feels like we get, now we start using plastic for things we didn't used to do. I think of like apples that are individually wrapped 
in plastic in the store that didn't used to be. And now this is not either or, but the reduction of using, of production, of producing the stuff and using the stuff, it seems to me where that's where I'm going for me personally, much more. Of course, if there's something to be recycled, I'm going to recycle it and not throw it away. But I try to avoid getting the thing in the first place. So, you know, much more shopping at the farmer's market and the CSA where, and bring my own bag. And that's how I end up, the last time I threw out my garbage was September. And before that, it was 16 months before that. And how does this view sound to you? <laughs> I have not asked anyone before. So first, it, it resonates with me, the whole concept of reduction. And I told you a little bit about um, Procter & Gamble's time-based goals. That one goal I'll, I'll illustrate is by 2020, we had have committed to reduce our use of packaged materials by 20%. But I also told you that we need to set very ambitious goals and even set them higher to account for some challenges. So it was just a couple of weeks ago that we announced we are going to redu- reduce by 50% the amount of virgin petroleum plastic usage across Procter & Gamble. So that's really lowering demand. Let me reiterate that. By 2030, we will reduce by 50% our use of virgin petroleum plastic. That's fantastic commitment, and we will deliver that. And that's because we believe that reduction is of paramount importance. Now, at the same time, we recognize the value that plastic brings to us. Again, it's a lightweight material. Mm-hmm. It saves lives. In, in the medical industry, plastic saves lives. It extends the life of food on the shelf so it feeds people. Pretty high order benefits, right? So when I talk about saving lives, that I have a, a very personal connection. My granddaughter, who was born premature, had a medical feeding tube and a medical breathing tube because she needed that, that help. And so that precious life was, was enabled to be built upon, and she's thriving today because of plastic. Now, in, in that regard, I'd love to see as many feeding tubes and breathing tubes as needed, right? Mm-hmm. But let's also take that material, recover it properly, and, and recycle it where we can, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, it costs money to do that, and particularly in, in those hygiene types of applications, and you may not want to have such a post-consumer recycle content but putting it back in the other applications, whether it's a, a durable good or a plastic bottle, it's a perfectly good home for it. And when we think about re- reduction, I just encourage people to, to balance that with the greater good. So in the example of food packaging, now Procter & Gamble, we're not into a whole lot of food packaging these days. But we do know that when you wrap a vegetable in a plastic wrap, it extends its life for two weeks. And and I just ask people to think about that, all of the farming practices, the planting, the harvesting, the water to grow those crops, the transport to get them to people, it's lost if the food rots on the shelf. So with a gram of plastic, you could extend that shelf life and feed more people. It starts to give you a a purpose of the greater good of these types of materials. Now, we have to collect them and recover them and use them back again keep them in the supply chain. And as you say, you get a benefit from doing that. The, the benefit is not only a, a, an augmented supply chain, but an environmental benefit. And then 
you know, I already talked about the human benefit that we get, whether it's saving lives or feeding the hungry or bringing um, better hygiene to people. All of these very high order societal benefits that come from using these types of materials, as long as we can collect them and, and reuse them responsibly, they have a very good vital spot in our society. Okay, so benefit, medical benefits, food benefits. What costs, are there any costs? And if so, what are they that come from, say, wrapping individual fruits and vegetables? Well, let's go back to, to the human life. What cost do you put on a human life? I, I mean, what are, what's the cost of increased use of plastic? Okay, so they're breathing tubes, uh, but that's not all that happens. Well, let's say now I've, I have one more productive life in, in society that can, that can benefit warm the hearts of others as an infant, but eventually grow into a contributing member of society. That to me is, is a wonderful use of a material. Yeah. Yeah. Of course there, there are definitely benefits. You know, how do we, how do we put a cost on human life? Oh, no, no. Okay. If we have plastic, we can make breathing tubes. That's a benefit. Is that all that happens with plastic? Or is there anything else that happens that we'd, that we'd cut as not a positive? Well, I like to talk to you about some of the benefits of, you know, saving lives, feeding the hungry, improving hygiene for for our population. Those are some of the benefits. We all know the negatives if you do not um, recover the material and use it responsibly. There's a lot of negative benefits, and that's some of the reasons that we work to keep plastic out of the environment. Mm-hmm. So the material itself, it's only bad when you don't manage it responsibly, just like anything. And it's really incumbent upon ourselves. We talked about responsibility in the beginning. Well, we believe it is our responsibility to be a a partner in that supply chain, not just on the front end, but on the back end as well. And that's why you'll see companies like Procter & Gamble and others stepping out more, communicating more on, on what they're doing to recover the material in a responsible way and put it back into reuse again. Okay. I have to say, it's not really changing my view that the more that I go with avoiding certain things entirely, you know, I, I generally avoid getting packaged food. Right. And in favor of going to the farmer's market and getting it there. And actually it doesn't actually, it just go, even if I'm in a, a supermarket, I'm going to get the fresh produce, veg, fruits, vegetables. I'm going to bring a bag with me and get the bulk foods. You know, so usually I don't have anything to throw away after I go shopping. Uh, I just have some stuff that I compost. And the more that I do this, the more that I find that I don't want the stuff that I used to get before. Now, I was talking with someone the other day and they were saying how they were trying to decide between milk that they can now get in, in glass bottles. This sounded very much like Loop, which a partnership with Procter & Gamble that Tom talked about a bunch. is like you're creating packaging where the package is an asset of you guys so that it comes back to you instead of trying to make something as cheap as possible because it would get thrown away. You're making something that will sustain and, and endure and which sounded to me like a whole new, you talked about different business plans and it sounded like that's not a whole different business plan, but certainly a direction that I could see a lot less disposable stuff. Yeah. And, and let me comment on that, Josh, in that specific example, some might say it's like bringing back the milkman yeah. again, right? So early days when I was growing up, we'd have milk bottles delivered to our door. We consume them, wash them out and put them out. They'd get refilled again and brought back. So that vessel, that glass bottle was reused over and over again. And you alluded to the, the loop program where indeed we're testing that again. Does it make sense to have a durable good that you can clean, reuse over and over again? And so indeed we're testing that in both New York and in Paris, and we expect to see some pretty good results. Now, there's also a price point associated with that. 
And in certain geographies where the, the price point and the need for um, materials is at a much lower level, you may only need or be able to afford a couple of pennies a day. You may not be able to buy an entire filled bottle of milk in this example. You may not be able to purchase an entire um, shampoo bottle. Maybe it's just a one-use portion. And so there's, there's the need to investigate different business models in different scenarios to meet those consumer needs, but also doing so in a way that benefits the environment the most. Hence the, the, the programs where you're promoting entrepreneurial activity and things like that. Exactly. And, and I want to come back to your, your reduction. There's a, a well-regarded waste hierarchy model that's it's sanctioned by the Environmental Protection Agency. It's welcomed by the European Commission and about 180 other countries around the world look at this waste management hierarchy. And what it does is it talks about an end of life for your product or packaging relative to its impact on the environment. And the number one least impactful thing on the environment is to use less, to avoid it altogether. So we totally agree in that regard. And hence our goal of 50% reduction by 2030. And so we believe setting this very critical high bar is, is essential and of the most paramount importance. So that's number one for us. We also know on this hierarchy, the second one that's um, least impactful in the environment is something called reuse or refill. So we follow this model in that regard. Third is recycling. And so if you follow these impact benefits on the environment, reduce, reuse or refill, and then comes recycling followed by energy recovery and landfill being at the bottom, right? When we landfill a material, it's not litter. It's contained in a a well-contained landfill, keeps it out of the environment in in a negative way, but it doesn't give any benefit back to the supply chain. And so we look at that waste management hierarchy, starting with reduction as the most paramount importance. And that's why we have these very high goals to deliver against that. What's missing, though, Josh, uh-huh. is litter. So litter doesn't even make it to the, the waste management hierarchy or, or burning the material or burying the material in, a, in an environment it's not intended for. So when we talk about efforts focused in, in developing countries, we, number one, want to collect the material and make a choice where we're going to put it. Littering is not a collection. It, it's a disposal without cause. And, and it is never the proper solution. Collecting it with an intent to reuse is, and getting it on that hierarchy is the best, as high up to the top as possible. Again, starting with reduction. So, okay, so I'm hearing some things that fit with what, what I conclude. Yeah, reduce primarily. That's the first thing to do. It's like, if you don't need something, don't get it. If, or if you don't, or find ways to not need things. And, and Josh, sorry to keep interrupting, but let uh-huh. me ask you, making a choice a knowledgeable choice before you use or purchase something, right? So today we are sharing technology via computers and and wires connecting us. And we're doing that because it's a very effective means of communication and, and sharing progress on a topic, right? It, headphones that you're wearing are made out of plastic materials. And I'm not saying avoid all the time, just be mm-hmm. conscious of your choices, choose responsibly, and if you choose to use a material, think about its end-of-life solution before you buy it and, and know what you're going to do with it, right? 
Yeah. And then I find that the more that you make those choices, the easier the next choice becomes. And like, yeah, actually the choice reminds me that when I started talking about the milk, I was talking to these people and they were trying to decide between uh, milk that they could get out of a uh, glass uh, container because they can take it back to wherever they get it from and get it refilled with milk or oat milk, which, or whatever, soy milk or almond milk or whatever. But they, they, I guess like oat milk and they were saying, but that comes in a package that, that as far as they knew is less recyclable than the glass for the milk. And, but then the milk was more carbon intensive in the, in, cause of the cows. And so they're going back and forth between that. And I thought, you know, I struggled with that for a while too, but then I realized when I was getting oat milk, this is like 10 years ago, I was putting it on oats and I was thinking nutritionally, I'm paying someone to make mix oats and water together, put in a package for me to put on oats with water. And I was like, I just switched to water. And now I don't have to, I don't get either of those things. And they were like, they were kind of like, I didn't even think of that. And now water has less flavor than oats, oat milk. But on the other hand, I I have a blender and I could do it myself. Anyway, my point is that um, there's a lot of push for recycling. And I think people miss that they can just not get the stuff at all. But now I'm hearing from you also, you're clearly saying, well, you, this 50% reduction in virgin oil-based supply, if I, if I said it right, that is a, a reduction of, that means less money is going to the places that are pulling the stuff out of the ground, the oil out of the ground, and turning it into something that might end up in an ocean or might end up in a, yeah, I think rivers and oceans or wherever. And that to me is, that's reduction. And you're also talking about goals and to me, one of my big conclusions is that if you don't change the goals of a system, and if the goals are simply things that end up with pollution, you know, growth, uh, comfort and convenience, externalizing costs, then if you make that system more efficient, then you're going to end up polluting more efficiently. But if you change the system first and you change some of the goals, so you make instead of growth, no matter what, to be something like enjoying what you have and Instead of externalizing costs, I hear you saying taking responsibility, even for things that are outside of your hands. Mm-hmm. Then recycling, in my mind, does, starts to make a lot more sense. It's not just because if you don't, if you, if your system is driving toward, we're going to externalize every cost that we can in order to maximize profits. Then if you make that more efficient, you're going to externalize costs more efficient and you're going you're gonna to dump stuff. You're going to say, well, that's in their hands, but that's not what you're doing. Yeah, what we like to say we're doing is is a combination of both. So it's not an either or, it's a mm-hmm. both and. So we want to reduce and we want to recycle. Reduce our plastic, increase our recycling. And you need both of these as well as other things to make the solution the most sustainable one. Feeling inspired? Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? Go to joshuaspodek.com slash podcast to hear other interviews but even more valuable, join the growing community of people who care enough to act, not just talk. Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more, and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. Okay. And now a while ago, you alluded to your personal values that this is hitting on. And I wanted to come back to that, that it sounded like you weren't just like a little side thing that you were saying there. It sounded like there was something that is inside you that is, you sound as driven now as someone I imagine like 28 years into this, you don't sound like you've lost your, your steam. It sounds like there's something really motivating you. Sure. I, I, I'm not even halfway yet. I'm, I'm 56 <laughs> years old and, 
and 80 is, is the new halfway mark for me. Uh-huh. And, you know, I have a personal passion for um, exercise and endurance. And I like to bring that to, to the marketplace as well. And so when we have a difficult challenge ahead of us, whether it's running a 10K or a marathon or an ultra marathon or an Ironman, you, you break that into little steps along the way. And then you add them up. And it's absolutely amazing what you can do on a personal level. And when you bring that into the workplace, it's the same thing. You break a big problem down into little steps. You have the the energy, the discipline, the technology, and you can bring that solution to life. And and that's for me where, you know, I use the term I'm blessed to work for Procter & Gamble because both of those values of, you know, go after a, a tough stretching goal, but have the discipline to bring it to life and stick with it. Those things come together for me, both professionally and personally, and, it, and it's a whole lot of fun. And next time we're together, by the way, Josh. Oh yeah, you do my push-ups. I'll do your burpees. <laughs> Let the so the so the listeners know we've chatted before. We hit the record button, and uh, and so Steve does, if I remember right, something like a thousand push-ups a day. No, no, it's just just four hundred. Oh, just four hundred. Oh, here I thought you were doing some serious exercise, <laughs> but only four hundred. Okay, so 400 push-ups a day. I do my burpees every day, and uh, we've kind of chatted about that. And oh, if we get started on that, I, I want to go. <laughs> I gotta, we're, we're, we're both liable to talk about that for a long time. And, uh, but I think we can both agree. I hope the listeners are hearing the joy of like what a lot of people are like, oh, exercise. And it's really fun. I, I don't know. It's like, what's the emotion that comes from daily exercise? It's personal fulfillment. It's feel good. It's knowing that you're doing something good for your, for your body and, and for your spirit, you, you know, but let's not get caught up on a number, Josh. We said 400 or a thousand. It doesn't matter, right? Do five, do 10, just do something a little bit more than you thought you could do and get started. Right. And that carries over whether it's exercise or work or your mission in life, whatever it is, just, you know, get started, do a little, the next day, do a little bit more, a little bit more. And then all of a sudden, your baseline is, is incredible. And then you raise your baseline again, right? You had mentioned set goals and reset your goals. Same thing for a business or a personal. Constantly reset your goals, but maintain that baseline. And it's amazing what you can accomplish. Yeah. I, and it's funny that I start off doing 10 burpees a day, and now I do 50-some burpees a day, plus a whole other like stretches and stuff. In my heart... I still feel like I'm only doing 10, which is to say, even though I'm doing more, it's still just as easy as, I don't know how to put it. It's like what you're saying, like you, you keep increasing your skills and abilities and balance and whatever you get out of whatever it is that each person does. It somehow doesn't, it doesn't feel harder. It's, but it does feel more joyful, rewarding, fulfilling. So when, that's when we need to bring new things on, new challenges, right? Don't forget about that base, but what do we do now? What do we do additional? Right, because I'll tell you, I can do 400 push-ups. Big deal, because in five minutes somebody can introduce me to a new exercise, and they'll have me crying in pain. Uh-huh. Right, and it's it's the openness to try something else. That's what we need to do. Yeah, I keep finding that uh, like I'll do something, and I'm like, how exactly do I like? Is my form on or off or whatever? And then I go and and look at a couple of videos, and I'm like, oh man, I just there's an exercise I haven't done. What's that one about? 
And I'd like to talk to people about it because a friend of mine just did his first power up. So it's you know, doing a pull up and pushing down. So Josh, let me just pick out one thing you said. You said you look at it in a video and you critique yourself. We like to invite critique and have people assess what we're doing and give us some good feedback. You know, I, I started with the consumers and call the 800 number and give us feedback. Feedback is a gift. It helps us get better, whether it's exercise or business or whatever. But that gift of feedback helps us get better, whether it's a self-critique or a critique from others. It's usually a, internally we can critique our own our own bodies and exercise, but it's better if we're in the business world to be critiqued by others. So we invite that um, participation, particularly with those that may not necessarily agree with us, because then we can look at it through their lens and develop a, a more informed answer, a more informed approach. And it helps us set that goal even higher the next time. Again, I said accounting for gravity, right? We have to do that. So setting that goal but having the tenacity to go out and deliver it, you know, that's something internal that we need to have. And when you have a company doing that with commitment from the leadership, it, it's just so empowering. And, you know, that's what we're doing here at Procter & Gamble is setting those very ambitious goals, but the commitment and the skills and the resources to go deliver them as well. Now, I want to go back to the question I asked you about what motivates you. And you talked about you'd like a, a challenging goal. You like to set big goals. That's the, what you work on. And that sounds like a big piece of it, but also you could apply that to lots of different things. So it feels to me like there's something about the environment that that means something to you because you, you could apply how you work to other things Well, you do it with fitness. But what about the, what does the environment mean to you? If you don't mind my asking, it's, it's something I ask every guest. And it's one of my favorite parts of the podcast, because at the beginning, I really thought everyone was going to give the same answer. And I've not heard the same answer twice. And it's, everyone's got a, something that motivates them. And not everyone. I mean, I mean, so far it's been the case. But when you think about the environment, what do you think about? Is it sometimes it's pictures or images or memories or expectations of the future? Yeah. So for me, Josh, it's very simple. It, it is clean air, clean water. It, it's the ability to go out in the environment and, and go for a nice hike, to climb a hill, to see a blue sky, right? To, to enjoy the rain. And all that nature offers us, you know, to me, that's rewarding. It's relaxing. It's warming. And when I'm doing these activities, if I see litter in the environment, it, it's painful. And so I want to help fix that. And, and I want to leave the place a better spot for my kids and for my grandkids. So connecting these things together, it makes perfect sense to me. And it's interesting. I was on vacation on a beach and I found myself doing a beach cleanup. Sadly, there was a bag there, but I picked up the bag, we're able to put things in the bag, and then you enroll other people along the way. And within 10 minutes, we had 30 people cleaning the beach. Mm -hmm. And it, it's amazing because people want to contribute that way. You don't go to the beach planning a beach cleanup all the time, although sometimes I hope you do. We do that here. But you also want to go there to relax. And when you see an opportunity, you take care of it, right? You, you pick it up and, and why not turn it into fun? and enjoyable, make it enjoyable, this, this act of, of giving and, and helping improve the environment, right? Find joy in that. So I'm hearing a, a, a mix of things because it started off with um, clean air, clean water, clean land. And, and I guess with your kids, there's, there's the risk of losing that. 
And the flip side of that is that if you act on it, there's a joy that comes with it. Yes, absolutely. This is an obvious question, but I'm kind of curious how you answer it. Is there something special about you that you would get a joy out of it that others wouldn't? No, I think everybody would find joy in giving. Giving, uh, cleaning, uh, like... Giving of themselves, giving of their time, giving of their talent, giving of their treasure. You know, the the whole act of stewardship, Mm -hmm. giving time, talent, and treasure, it's a personal feel-good. I think most people reap joy when they give to others. Pretty simple, right? But profound, and I think quite real. Yeah, and part of this podcast is to get more people the prompt to... I think it's changing, but I think a lot of people would just see the plastic bag and maybe complain or act like it wasn't there. And I want to get more people doing what you do, what I do of, of like doing it and then feeling, oh, I could have done that, like finding that joy in, yes, someone else littered, but I'm, I'm cleaning it up. Yeah. Be and part of the solution. So a question that I, I follow up with, with my guests is I invite you at your option to, based on what you're talking about, what the environment means to you, to do something to act on that value, on, on what the environment means to you. But it doesn't, it doesn't have to be the biggest thing in the world. It doesn't have to fix all the world's problems overnight. But it has to be something with a physically measurable result that you do it not, not telling others what to do and something you're not already doing, a personal thing. And I can edit this out if it's, if it's, if, if it's not something you want to do. But <laughs> I want to give people that out. But if, you'd like, if there's something that comes to mind that you're not already doing and you'd like to do, that's based on what you care about then I'd love to help get that, get that started. And it, it also doesn't have to be like forever. It could be a temporary thing. Sure. Well, Josh, let's stay in touch. Let's check back in and we'll talk about how I've accepted your challenge and turned it into reality. Let's do that. I want to persist a bit more to, because what I find is that if we make it a smart goal, specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, time-bound, that helps get things done a lot. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to put you on the spot, but I, I find that a lot of people, what happens is that when, that when we get to a specific measurable time-bound goal, then there's a change that often happens that the person's like, you know, I've been meaning to do this thing for a while. And it does, it's not like a burden. It's, it becomes something like, oh, this is an opportunity to do something that I've been meaning to do or that I wanted to try out or something like that, which, is, which enables me to persist a bit because it may feel like I'm putting you on the spot and you may feel like, I, I hope that I, you don't feel like that, like that way, but- I think that with a, a back and forth of a little bit, then something will come out that's much more achievable than and, and more specific than, and, and that you will feel glad to have done. I'm not sure, but that's why that enables me to persist a bit. So it's interesting as, as we're talking, Josh, I shared with you the, the alliance to end plastic waste. Mm-hmm. And so what I would say is you've caught me after I have accepted that challenge and put it into action. Well, do you have, that's a Procter and Gamble thing, right? Uh, it is indeed a Procter and Gamble thing, but think of Procter and Gamble as a bunch of individuals and individuals bringing these things to life. And it, I happen to be empowered by by the company, but also personally passionate about doing this. And it's the combination of those two things that'll make it such a reality. I'm a huge fan of things like that. And one of the things I, li- I like to bring in this podcast is a lot of people at home feel like, you know, the government should do this, corporations should do that, and they, they don't act themselves. And most importantly, they don't find the joy in finding something that they care about and acting on something that they care about. So I try to bring guests to share their values and then to act on those values 
and then to share the results of how acting on those values went. If you feel like, I'm not asking you to do something for me or for what the New York Times says you should do or Greenpeace says you should do or anything like that. It's to do something that is based on what you want to do, but might not already be doing, but not telling others what to do. I'm, by all means, help influence others, but that's not what this is about. Josh, it seems like you're trying to point point to something and I'm not quite biting. Um, maybe you, you ran, ran into a person that says, I've set quite a few challenges ahead of me. I, I have my list of personal things to do, mm-hmm. um, my next set of endurance events, my next set of professional endurance events to keep plastic out of the environment. Um, they're pretty all encompassing for me right now. And I'm excited to be a part of it. And so professionally, I'd encourage you to watch the Alliance to End Plastic Waste. Personally, let, let's hook up at the next Ironman and, um, and and swim together. You can teach me how to swim and perhaps I can pull you on the run a little bit. Okay, I'll leave it at that. I do want to clarify that you talked about the fun, the joy, the reward that comes from acting on these things. And of course, there's a, there's also a joy in, in making things happen at an, in, at an organizational level, at an institutional level that may have broad ramifications uh, and, and have, have a much bigger effect than it, what anything that one person could do. But the point, what I'm asking about, what I'm, what I'm talking about is not what's the most important thing you can do or what's the biggest thing you can do. Those are important and big, of course. It's what joy is there and what joy can you discover from your own personal acting things. Like you could, it's the difference between what if we, if I said I got a whole bunch of kids to do exercises, but I didn't exercise myself. You would say, Josh, you know, there's something to there. You might enjoy the exercise if you started doing some exercises. Yes, it's, it's, it's the benefit to the world of getting a lot of other people to exercise. There's a lot of benefit to that. But I don't get that benefit myself. And I think you know that if you talk to someone who doesn't exercise and they could exercise and you know that if they started exercising, they would be glad that they did. And they would thank you for getting you for getting for helping them to start exercising. So the measure here is not what's the most important good to the world that we can create. That's interesting. I love that. But this is uh, for people to discover for themselves something or for people to feel for themselves something they weren't already feeling. Because I'm confident that if it came from something inside you, clean air, clean land, clean water, acting on a challenge, that after you did it, you would feel like, oh, I'm glad I did that. I wish I'd done that earlier. Something like that. But I'm not communicating it effectively. So I said I would leave it at that. I'll leave it at that. Josh, I will do this. I'll put some thought to this and I'll send you, I'll send you what I'm going to do. Because Great. I... It did resonate with me. Okay. And I, and I do appreciate your time. And uh, I, I look forward to our next dialogue. Okay. I hope I haven't pushed too much. I hope I pushed enough, but not too much. Uh, persisted, I'd like to say. This has been a, a rewarding conversation. I appreciate it. I hope so. Uh, for me as well, because I got to share some things I hadn't shared. And I was, I'm very, it's really refreshing to hear stuff that for you, you take for granted because you're in that world. You know what Procter & Gamble is doing. You talked about, uh, this is not about competition. And so, you know, a lot of, your peers and a lot of organizations you co- collaborate with. And I'm really glad to, have, uh, I'm glad for my part to have helped bring that out to the world so people know what's going on. And it's really a delight to hear someone who loves what he's doing so much and is making such a big difference. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you for seeing that. It, it's a passion for me. And, and again, I'm blessed to be in a company that helps support that. Well, Steve Secret, thank you very much. Thank you. As you could probably tell, I'm not quite sure what to make of this conversation. First, as a person, I would love to hang out more with Steve. His dedication, his knowledge, his history, his passion, his drive, 
on a personal level, this is the type of guy I connect with. Before we hit record, we talked a lot about exercise, burpees, and habits. And if you know me, those are big, important things for me. I think the corporate context affected the conversation. Uh, he talked about uses of plastic, like the medical uses. But when asked about the potential costs, I didn't quite see what his answer was. He cited the example of the medical use. I couldn't put my finger on it in the moment, but it felt like the scale was off. Yes, it may save a life here or there, but people are projecting more plastic in the oceans and fish. And for medical devices, for the individuals that they use them on, very, very important. But in a world where people project more plastic in the oceans than fish, oceans covering something like 70% of the world's surface, a small medical device doesn't seem to compare. Saving human lives is important, of course. Everyone agrees on that. I'm not sure how to compare that with affecting billions and ecosystems globally. I feel like he was talking about an emotional appeal. It may be right. I'm not sure. But I, I didn't see what were the costs. The thing for me, as I said at the beginning, is, is increasing efficiency. That is closing the loop, reusing plastic, recycling plastic. Is that going to result in reducing total use? The pattern that often happens is when you recycle something, when you reuse something, that's a new source, which lowers the cost for things. So every individual use may lower the amount of waste, but you may start enabling new uses that were never used before. And now you start using more and more plastic. If you don't stem the supply, then all the plastic that's ever been produced is always around. I see this conflict in people's minds of increasing efficiency versus lowering total waste, that that doesn't always go together. I see that as how to expose that and resolve it as my current big challenge. Steve helped me in that, understand the perspective of people and the corporation. I'm not sure where to go with it next. Again, I feel great gratitude to Steve for sharing with me, with you, with all of us, the view inside of one of these major corporations that is genuinely and authentic, intending to change and in changing in very big ways at the individual level, at the corporate level. I'm glad to see that. It helps me a lot for my personal understanding of how to help. inspired to, then act. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others. Value means better and worse, and living by your values means living better by your values. You may struggle at first, but it's the hero's journey from living by others' values to living by yours. People say that little things add up. I won't argue against it, but what I find counts is acting. Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating others should act first or making excuses to the empowering I can make a difference and living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.